like you said, money is truly the true religion in this country. It is yeah. where people's loyalties lie, not to flag, not to each other, not to human rights. Mm -hmm. And I don't expect this to get any better anytime soon. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Corey Bradford. Well, Corey, you've now been in New York a little while during the heart of holiday season. Yep. How's it going for you? It's going a little weird. I wasn't aware that you all put loudspeakers of Christmas music like on light poles and just blurred it out for the whole city to hear. I've never seen that in any other city I've lived in. Well, you know, one related phenomenon in New York that I find fascinating are people who have external speakers on their bicycles mm -hmm. uh, as they're going down the street. And it just takes a certain kind of person to just be like, whatever I'm listening to, everybody has to listen to right it. Now. Yeah, <laughs> I've noticed that on the subway as well. It's like, you guys are really big into letting everybody in onto your musical tastes. It's interesting. Yeah, I've got to think about what my song will be when I play it, when I walk yeah. down the street. But, big decision. but we have some big news here at Lost Debate as a company. Yeah. We announced yesterday afternoon that we have a fund that it's a multi-million dollar fund that we're going to be using to fund content that combats polarization. And we're leaving it purposely general. It could be content in the arts and sports and obviously politics and news. For sure. If you go to our website, which is lostdebate.com, uh, you can find a link to it. Uh, I think the link says pitch a show and you could find out how to just Tell us about your ideas and it shouldn't take you a ton of time. If you've got really good ideas, we're going to be sifting through them and interviewing people for content in 2022 that we're going to support. Yeah, this is your opportunity to, you know, if you ever wanted to have an idea that you wanted to put out there for the whole world to see, this is your opportunity to get something out there into the world. Well, what's happening in the world, Corey? Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Today, we're going to be talking about a conflict over a key metal that is used in electric vehicles. We're going to talk about a new poll that reveals that the majority of young people believe our democracy is in some deep trouble. Ravi sits down with Liz Wolf, a libertarian writer for Reason. They're going to be discussing vaccine mandates. I'm really excited to hear that conversation, by the way. And we're also going to be talking about a country that Everyone seems to talk about, but nobody seems to be able to talk about in the right way, according to their standards. And that is the country of China. So let's just get right into it. Um, it just seems like every time someone opens up their mouth about China here in America, they almost have to just like go, oh, I'm sorry. You know, I couldn't yeah. say that. You know, yeah, what's going it, on with this? It's, it's unbelievable to me uh, how much people self-regulate mm -hmm. about talking about the country of China. Mm -hmm. And we had we were. We were given a host of stories over the past week that were each treated separately mm -hmm. about China, but I actually think they were all related. And let's mm -hmm. start with the hedge fund manager, Ray Dalio, mm -hmm. who went on CNBC and was pressed about China and China's record. Uh, let's watch that clip. Clearly, there's, there's human rights issues. Uh, there's questions right now about this Chinese tennis player, uh, Peng Shui. There have been questions about Jack Ma. H how do you think about that piece of it when it relates to investing there? Well, I can't be an expert in those types of things. What I basically do, and I, for 50 years I um, uh, invest all over the world, I look uh, to whatever the rules are. The, if the government is sent, has a policy that I should do a certain thing and so on, but I can't be an expert in all of those, uh, those particular dynamics of, of that. I'm, I really have no idea. So Ray wow. Dalio, noted author, of the book Principles. Uh -huh. Seems to have lost his principles yeah. here when it comes to China. He seems to have lost his ability to speak as well. <laughs> yeah, and so what I find fascinating here is he's like, whoa, I, 
I employ all these people. I'm a billionaire who have all these researchers to root out every little cent that a company has spent mm -hmm, uh, and mm -hmm. will spend in the future. Mm -hmm. But I can't Google China and human rights to figure out whether this is a massive abuser of human rights or not. And and for our listeners, like Andrew Ross Sorkin, mm -hmm. uh, he doesn't even do justice. He says human rights issues. Like we're talking about forced sterilization, yep. forced removal, mm -hmm. uh, massive government surveillance of people. And I know that people like to compare China to the U.S. Mm -hmm. like there's an organization, an international organization called Freedom House, which ranks mm -hmm. countries uh, according to how oppressive they are. Yeah. And a good a high score is good, a low score is bad. Mm -hmm. The United States is 83 out of 100, China is nine out of 100. Oh, wow. Uh, and so this is a country that is massively oppressive, uh -huh. anti-democratic, it's obvious to anybody, but he seems to have lost himself here. What's so weird about these corporate guys who, who do this kowtowing to China is that Recently, we've seen this trend of corporate wokeness, right? Yep. All these corporations have fallen to the sort of kind of progressive ideas. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yep. But if they're going to be so woke about all these different issues when it comes to racial inequality and different things that are going on here in the United States of America, then it's really hypocritical if they can't speak out on a place like China that, I mean, when it comes to human rights abuses, maybe top five in the world as far as, you know, the things that they're doing over yeah, there. Yeah, especially when you take into account how many people live within its borders and how exactly. powerful the country is. Like, exactly. obviously, like North Korea is more oppressive, yeah. but it's a smaller country that has way less global influence, but they're also both bad. What I found notable is he says, I look to their rules, right? Yeah. And like, imagine, I don't, I hate to go to the Nazi analogies because mm -hmm. they're always like, it's kind of a lazy analogy, but- yeah, a little cliched. But their rules were like, yeah, we're going to put Jews on trains and mm -hmm. we're going to exterminate them. Like, that's such a cop out to say, well, whatever their rules yeah, are, whatever that's the fine. rules are, I'm going to look the other way. Yeah. Or like in countries where homosexuality mm -hmm. is illegal, for mm -hmm. example, mm -hmm. and we're just going to look to their rules. It's such a cop out. But for speaking sure. of CEOs mm -hmm. uh, who have a lot to say about the United States and, and uh, you know, quote unquote, wokeness, mm -hmm. but who seem to have lost their tongue on China, we had a controversy also this week about Jamie Dimon, who's yeah. the CEO of one of the biggest banks in the world, JP Morgan, JP Morgan Chase. He took the opportunity of the 100-year anniversary of JP Morgan to uh, point out that it was also the 100-year anniversary of the Communist Party in China. And comparing the two said, you know, I bet we outlast them. It was a joke. <laughs> uh, and you'd think, that, me laugh. you'd think it would come and go. Yeah. Uh, but he actually felt the need to apologize for that joke. And I find this interesting because this is a guy who has no problem criticizing the United States government. Yeah. And, you know, as you talked about, like he, he and other CEOs have had no problem, mm -hmm. you know, weighing in on any controversy in the United States, like mm -hmm. quote unquote, like being woke, mm -hmm. but feel like they can't even joke about China. I mean, it's insane. It's like China is trying to use our values of free speech against us because the China Communist Party criticizes the United States all the time. They and its press. Yeah. Exactly. They're in their press. They criticize our military involvement in other countries and things like that. And we do that to ourselves. But when we try to criticize them or when somebody like somebody in the NBA uh, tries to criticize them, for instance, uh, for instance uh, Enos Cantor uh, plays for the Celtics. He's now Enos Freedom. Um, <laughs> he has been going on this tirade about China and now China won't even allow Celtics games to be played in their country. Or to be viewed. In or to be country. viewed in their country yeah. at all. Yeah. And this reminds me of the LeBron James controversy yeah. where he, you know, this is a few years ago, LeBron James uh, criticized Daryl Morey, who was the GM of the Rockets, Rockets because Daryl Morey had the, 
the gall to criticize China's uh, activities in, in, in Hong, Hong Kong. Kong. Yeah. And it, it, that whole period of time was so notable because LeBron James said that Maury was um, ignorant or something like mm -hmm. that. I don't want to get into a, a, word, a, a word or sentence uh, feud with Daryl. Um, but Daryl uh, Morey, but I believe he wasn't educated on, on, on the situation at hand. And then you had these known like woke coaches like mm -hmm. Steve, Kerr Steve Kerr and Greg Popovich who were interviewed about China at mm -hmm. that time. And they were like, well, I'm, I'm just not that informed. It's uh, something I'm reading about and, uh, just like everybody is, but I'm not going to comment further. These yeah. are people, LeBron James last week or two weeks ago mm -hmm. claimed to know whether Rittenhouse was his tears were real or not, but somehow can't Google human rights in China, a country yeah. that he profits off of, that the NBA has billions of dollars in financial relationships with. And at the time, LeBron James was trying to get China to agree yeah. to show Space Jam. So what he'll but claim, oh yeah. hit the nail on the head right there. It's all about profit when it comes to the NBA and what's going on with this hedge fund manager. All of this is about profit. At the end of the day, China, if we criticize them, they can just take the money away. Right. And we're not going to do the same to them. So it's almost like we're almost being, I don't, I don't want to say slaves to China, but it's almost in a way we really can't speak out against them for fear of them pulling back, you know, economically from us. Right. And this gets to the, my, my real, my big takeaway from this, which is there are very few American corporations. These companies, yeah. Jamie Dimon claims, or people like Jamie Dimon claim, and I don't know what he actually claims to be mm -hmm. American companies, the NBA mm -hmm. and a lot of these companies are international companies. Yes, of course, and, at this point. And this is not just specific to those industries. Uh, Shirley Lee in The Atlantic wrote an article a couple of weeks ago talking about Hollywood and Hollywood's problem with oh, this. Oh, yeah, yeah. And basically, and if you look at the case of Chloe Zhao criticizing China, there's just the same story in one industry after another in the country, in this country. Like, China has basically owned us, mm -hmm. and very few people are speaking out about this, and, mm -hmm. you know, Shout out to certain uh, Hollywood directors like Judd Apatow said, this is what he said, China has bought our silence with their money. Exactly. And it's just really sad. And, you know, like you said, money uh, is is truly the true religion in this country. It is, it is yeah. where people's loyalties lie, not to flag, not to each other, not to human rights. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't expect this to get any better anytime soon. It's a sad situation. Let's move on to another situation that's probably even sadder, and that's what's going on in the Congo in regards to this uh, mining of cobalt. So cobalt, for people who don't know, is this element that's very essential to things like electric cars, uh, lithium-ion batteries, things like that. What's exactly going on here with the controversy about this element? Yeah, the reason why we wanted to talk about this is because there have been a series of stories, and mm -hmm. there's been some really good journalism pointing out that we are so dependent on this mineral for mm -hmm. our daily existence. Like you said, if you use a cell phone, if you use a laptop computer, and especially these electric vehicles. And there was all this attention in COP, mm -hmm. the, the recent climate summit, climate summit, around trying to push countries to move to more renewables, like mm -hmm. electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. And there's been very little discussion, if any, outside of these few articles, which kind of came and went, about, well, what are the trade-offs of using these uh, electric vehicles and mm -hmm. these batteries. If you were at COP and you were an activist and you raised your hand and said, you know what? I think we should use more nuclear energy, which doesn't have these specific trade-offs. You'd be, you'd be shouted out of the room. You'd, you'd, you'd get asked to leave. Yeah. yeah. But if you were somebody who raised your hand and said, you know, we need more electric vehicles, people, that's a applause. given. Yeah, that's a applause. given there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we have a situation where you have... Uh, 
things that are as close to forced labor as you can get. I'm mm-hmm. sure there is some forced labor, but you have kids making a dollar a day, 12 hours a day. And the emphasis there is that they're kids. These yes. are children being used in the mining of cobalt, basically. Yeah, and Sky News has video of this. It's it's really horrendous. And no, I don't hear a lot of environmental activists talking about this. Mm-hmm. To their credit, a lot of American companies have said that they're going to be backing away from the use of cobalt. So mm-hmm. for instance, Tesla has made a goal to get to zero, and I know they've been decreasing their reliance on cobalt. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, first of all, they're going to be moving to other materials like that aluminum. That also have to be mined. We have to, yeah, where is that coming from? We mm-hmm. need to have a debate about that. Second, in the international sphere, when we're pushing for these agreements for other countries like India and China mm-hmm. to move to electric, to mm-hmm. move to renewables, they're going to be using cobalt. Exactly. Uh, they haven't pledged to not use it. Yeah. And w- there's huge human rights issues here. There are wars breaking out over this yeah. stuff. There are kids who are being mistreated. It's bad for the environment in its own way. And I'm just not hearing enough about this from the environmental community. And like you said, even if American companies step back from it, these other people in China and India are still going to be using it. So that child labor is still going to be exploited. Everything that's going on there is still going to be going on there. And probably at higher levels of a country like China gets more. I mean, I hate to keep going back to China, but I think there was some data saying that at the end of the Obama administration, China took control of one of the largest cobalt mines in the Congo. And there's so many problems. Yeah, the Obama administration did very little Didn't, to try did to, very stop little to stop that. Uh, and there's so many problems in the Congo that are just that are systematic that go back decades. I mean, they've had so many wars. There's some of the most central wars that have taken place in Africa since since the the end of um you know the scramble for africa since all these all these countries in africa got their independence in the 1960s and 70s there's been so many wars in congo specifically uh i mean the 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 congo wars are known in africa as their version of war wars yeah because so many like over nine countries were involved in the second congo war and so there's so much exploitation going on there it's it's really depressing because like you know we you we use all these products every single day and we never really think about what it takes on the other side of the world to get these things. So how are we as Americans supposed to even look at it? Yeah, I remember I worked at the UN and I used to sit in these National Security Council mm-hmm. briefings on Congo, and it was just it's it was horrific, continues mm-hmm. to be, and it and it was like you said it it was an issue going back way mm-hmm. before the time I spent at the UN, and there's mm-hmm. a really uh, sad book called King's Leopold's Ghost, which oh, talks yeah. about 100 plus years ago, the rubber trade and how yeah, yeah. terrible that, that was. Horrible. was. Horrible. And so, you know, Congo has this weird, they call it in political science, curse of the natural resources, mm-hmm. where it has so many resources, trillions and trillions mm-hmm. of dollars mm-hmm. of, of needed resources, which you'd think would make it a rich country. But because of things like uh, imperialism, which mm-hmm. was the case of the rubber trade and King mm-hmm. Leopold, because of like the sort of the scramble for these resources and mm-hmm. what it does to like the stakes are so high yeah. over control of those resources. It's 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 weird and fascinating and sad that a country like Congo, ha- which has so much wealth, is able to uh, has has struggled so much. Mm-hmm. Nigeria has its own version of this, which is mm-hmm. you know less bad, but still has been a challenge for the country for sure. Versus a country like Singapore or Japan, countries that have almost no natural resources but who have thrived. It's mm-hmm. it's such a fascinating puzzle. And it just goes to that climate change discussion of pretty much anything you do to try to mitigate the use of like fossil fuels and these other things. There's something else that has to replace that. And then like you said earlier, you have to look at the trade-offs. Right. What are you giving to get this? And is that any better or worse than what we're doing right now with fossil fuels? Right. And just to, to, to close the book on this, I'm not a nihilist. So I'm not saying let's, let's not move to renewables. I'm just saying Let's be clear out about the trade-offs, which is why I'm way more pro-nuclear than a lot of other people is because 
I, the, the, the dangers of nuclear are exaggerated because every Chernobyl, we remember it forever, yeah. right? Whereas yeah. the kid who's working in that mine right exactly. now or the war that's breaking out, that's happening today mm-hmm. on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about it. Yep. Lost debate, pro-nuclear. Um, so let's move on. So I read this very interesting poll. It came from Harvard and it's about young Americans. Harvard. Harvard. And it's about young Americans and their just complete and total dissatisfaction and distrust in uh, government and what's going on right now. Basically, according to this poll, uh, a majority, 52% of young Americans believe that democracy in America is either in trouble or just plain failing. And many of them believe we're headed to essentially another civil war. I'm with the young people on this. My friends make fun of me because I'm almost like a prepper. I think that I was arguing with my brother who's conservative about this the other day. He was Mm -hmm. like, oh, you talk to normal people. Everybody gets along. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And because of the the job that I have, which is running this company and others, I read a lot of news from the extremes Mm -hmm, of our political mm -hmm, spectrum. mm -hmm. And people seem to be preparing for this. Yeah. <laughs> they seem to be preparing for the wars. And I think in particular, and I think it was 37% of young people think the chances are greater than 50% that we're going to see civil war. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of with them. I, I think that when, when people don't trust their elections, when they mm-hmm. hate each other more than they hate external enemies, mm-hmm. these are all things that seem to be tender mm-hmm. that is just ripe for uh, a, a wildfire to break out. And I'm really concerned about it. Yeah, well, see, I was born and raised in Alabama. I'm from a place that had to deal with the first American Civil War in a way that a place like New York didn't, really. Yeah. And they never really got over that. So the idea of Civil War down there has been something that has been ingrained in their brains for most of their existence. And I don't know. I mean, as far as do I think we're going to go to a civil war, probably. And it seems like these young people really agree with that. But my question is, is that avoidable by just simply coming together and saying, hey, this isn't working. (laughs) Perhaps maybe we should do, and this is going to be a very controversial statement, but I'm going to make it anyway. Perhaps maybe we should do what the USSR did in 1991 and come to an amicable agreement that this is not working and just divorce. What if we did that, Avi? What if we just said, this isn't working. Let's just break off European this thing up and get to like seven, eight different countries on the, on the continent. Like, would you be down for that? Like, would you be okay with that? Well, my question is, then you and I would be citizens of different countries. No, I'm New York now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm an immigrant. I am, I'm, I'm going to come up here. I, if I could buy fiat, this would probably get me in a lot of trouble. No, it's not. Who gives a shit? Like, like the, if by fiat, I could create a bunch of different parts of the US, I would do that. My The thing I'm worried about is what it would take to get to that. I think yeah, the civil exactly. war would be necessary. I feel like to get the there. civil war yeah. would be necessary just yeah. for that to happen. I don't think we would just click and then like the way that the US So if a, US if a state seceded, like if a state just said, I'm, I'm bye bye, do you think that in this day and age it would cause the same effect it did the first? Or do you think the government would care as much? Well, Texas is the one that threatens all the time. All the time, yeah. And but I, California has threatened. To be clear, I like, te- I like Texas, mm-hmm. but if it wanted to secede, I. I'm sure. I don't know. Like, what? Like, buy Texas. This country, like, clearly something's not working. Yeah, exactly. Uh, That's my point. Something's not working. It's like, if you're in a marriage, like, we just can't be doing it for the kids at some point. Like, we have to just come to an agreement and say, you know what? Let's end this thing before we kill each other. You got something to talk about? Because we got time here. No, Uh, I just think think that there's a way to do this without (laughs) civil war. That's my point. Well, that's what the kids are saying. So they're saying that 
they, they overwhelmingly support compromise, which exactly. is not a word that's yes. being used. It's almost you overwhelmingly. Would, you would think that the young young people are being portrayed as these uncompromising, mm-hmm. impractical people, whereas I actually think it's 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 the Gen Xers like us mm-hmm. or the Boomers and and the older crowd who are so entrenched in their political beliefs that they mm-hmm. hate people of the different parties so much that they can't hear each other. Exactly, they can't give any ground because they are they believe that the other side's acting in bad faith. And what winds up happening this is the premise of our company. Then you start acting in bad faith without even realizing it yep. and then nothing gets done that's essentially what's been happening in our politics it's why this week we were treated with you know nancy mace versus marjorie taylor green versus yeah, bobar yeah. versus omar you know the, our, our congress is like a it almost resembles like the worst of a high school cafeteria right yeah, now and yeah. it's a reflection of how polarized our politics are but what actually gives me some hope mm-hmm. is that these young people uh they want the compromise they do what, what makes me a little sad though is that uh, there are overwhelming numbers of of these young people who are reporting that they're dealing with some form of mental illness. That's a big part. And a of quarter it. of them are saying that they, at least, over the past two weeks, they pondered self harm in yeah. some way. And I find that really sad, especially as somebody who's an educator. Mm-hmm. I know that there's like this take that they're just fragile and um and they're they're almost rewarded for self describing mental illness, and it's being like there's this critique that they that mental illness is thrown around casually. But, you know, interestingly, the same crowd that that criticizes young people for that also think that COVID was really harmful on people's mental health. So I I actually buy that these kids are struggling. I think that, and especially the numbers say that women in particular, young women are struggling the most. And is it because of social media? Is it because of just the unique nature of modern life? Is it because of COVID? I don't know, but we should take this really seriously. Yeah, I don't think Gen Z is just suffering for the sake of suffering. I don't look at these kids and say, oh, they're just being like this because they're weak or whatever. They want to be dramatic. They want no, the attention. I, don't, yeah. I mean, think about it. We've never in our lifetimes, in really the lifetime of this country, generations before us, we've never seen an election that we literally can't even agree on who won it. Right. So, of course, these people think we're headed to civil war. I mean, that's literally what started the first civil war was an election. At least they knew I mean, the South didn't admit, oh, Lincoln didn't win the election. They right. said, oh, he won it, and we are not okay with that, and that's why we're right. going to leave this country. But now, we're we're arguing over who even won it. Right. You know, it's just, it's really sad. It's really sad. But if the Civil War breaks out, I'm from Alabama, I will help you survive it, and um, I'll help New York and everything. Well, you're going to have to come find me in Costa Rica. Oh, so you're just yeah. dipping. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, okay. Well, it sounds good. Well, maybe I'll come down there with you. Coming up, never before seen footage on how Omicron became a new variant. So everyone's talking about Omicron, this new COVID-19 variant, and it really brings up the question, how does a new variant break through in such a competitive industry? Well, we got a Zoom interview that really illustrates the process. All right, is everyone connected? Can everyone hear me? I'm, I'm here, can you hear me? Yeah, you're coming in great. So let's just get started. It's great to finally have this face-to-face. Been hearing a lot about you, Omicron. You know me, I'm Delta. We spoke on the phone about this opportunity. You're also on with our CEO, Alpha. Alpha, you're, you're muted, bud. You're muted. It's really nice to meet you, Omiki. Thank you so much for, for, for showing up. I'm really excited to connect. Thank you. Uh- it's actually pronounced Omicron. Uh, it's, it's Greek. It's a Greek name. Now, this is going to be a pretty straightforward job interview. We're not going to throw any curveballs. So why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Well, uh, I actually recently just got into the industry. Um, but 
I'm proud to say that in this past few weeks, 32 of my 50 mutations are on the spike protein. What? That's impressive. Great stats. What were you doing before this? I was working in South Africa, actually, but um, this opportunity came up to work abroad, and this seems like a project that I, I would be really excited to work on. That's very interesting. What specifically attracted you to our organization? Oh, well, where do, where do I start? You guys have one, an outstanding track record dating all the way back to the second quarter of 2020, and you've shown a willingness time and time again to adapt your business model to stay relevant. I just want to make sure you understand this, Mark or Omar. We, are, we pride ourselves on our adaptability. It's very important to us. Oh, I know, I know, believe me. Uh, but I, th I, I still think that you guys can use my skill set. How so? Well, I'm aggressive. Can you make that tangible for us? Like, how exactly are you aggressive? Uh, well, like I said, I can't give too many examples right now. I just started out in the field and I was working in a different country, but I do know how to create a ton of buzz. If you put on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, they're all talking about me right now. I have an interview with Joe Rogan next week. Oh yeah, he's a good friend. We just uh, finished a project with him. It was really cool. So we're trying to build a culture here and we need the right people to help us build this good team because we have some really big goals. I mean, right now we're working towards a US lockdown by like the first quarter of 2022. Gotcha, yeah, no problem, I can do that. When can you start? Actually, Alpha, let me jump in here. I just wanted to keep this on the hush-hush, but uh, well, I mean, Omicron, you wanna tell them? Yeah, uh, we've actually already started on this project. Delta and I, we've been working on it. For Hold a on, guys. Like, I gotta take this. Governor DeSantis, uh, excited for the Christmas break. Okay, yeah. Glad we could make this work. You know, I was the big dog around here for, you know, a while. And I just wanna make sure we're on the same page. I wanna make sure we can work together what? as a team. Sorry, I, I gotta Omicron? take this. Hold on one sec. Alpha, baby. Yeah, I think he bought it. The fuck? Well, Liz, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, Liz, we call you Libertarian Liz around the <laughs> office, and we've been trading your articles, you know, in our long, you know, two month history as a, <laughs> as a company. And one of the reasons why we're really compelled by you and your work is because on a given week, like this week, for example, you're criticizing both the New York Times and Tucker Carlson, and it it seems like you have a strong independent streak, but also a strong point of view and a sense for the way you believe the world should be. And so we want to start bringing you on to challenge our views and some of our listeners' views and, and paint a different kind of perspective in America. And so before we do anything, I just want to hear for our audience's sake, just a little bit about who you are and where you come from. Yeah, I think this is really one of the super fun parts about being a libertarian. There are a ton of terrible parts. Like we're constantly embarrassed by, you know, I don't know if you saw like the Libertarian National Convention a few years ago where like some guy like decided to like strip on stage. Like we're not the most serious buttoned up political party <laughs> in the world. Um, and there is a distinction between those who espouse the ideology versus those who are really invested in the party politics and all that. I'm definitely more on the ideology side than the partisan stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, one of the really fun parts about being a libertarian is that you just get to constantly take shots uh, at Tucker Carlson and at the New York Times, right? Like people on both the left and the right are, um, you know, coming up with some really bad and threatening ideas. I think we're seeing this really interesting wave of like anti-tech sentiment and sort of populist pandering on both left and right. We're seeing it on the left, uh, espoused by people like Elizabeth Warren and AOC. And then on the right, we're seeing it by people like Josh Hawley. Uh, and I, for one, just you know want people to be generally left alone and be able to consensually engage in the types of 
you know, interactions they, they choose. Um, I want people to be able to make work hard and make an honest living and not have the government take so much of their stuff. I want people to be able to, you know, smoke mad bunts if they want to. Uh, I want people to be able to, uh, hold police accountable when they abuse their power. So I think it's kind of, uh, it's nice to be consistently sort of anti, anti-statism and anti-populism in a, in a whole bunch of forms. Yeah, and one thing I find interesting is that when people think of libertarians, they automatically think of them as right-wing. And for example, a lot of your content this week that I saw was basically pro-immigration, which oh, I yeah, think is not a, is a belief that is, seems obviously within the libertarian camp, but is not often associated with it in, in sort of popular debates. Yeah, it's so confusing to me that people don't understand that this is one of the most core parts of being libertarian, but I think there's a few ways you can approach it. I mean, I see it as a, a moral imperative. I think that people should not be, you know, relegated, consigned to living in a repressive or tyrannical regime just because that's where they were born. I want people to have the ability to move around. And, and so I, there's this like clear moral, like very compelling moral and humanitarian reason. But then I also think there's this like competitive and, and free market oriented reason, which is like, I think people ought to be able to hire the best person for the job, whatever that job may be, whether it's starting a new media company or whether it's hiring somebody to clean your house. And the fact that people are constrained by the country that they're born in and not able to move to, to make an honest living and to do those jobs, like I just don't even understand. Everybody loses out in that process. Right. You know, I think people should be able to uh, do what they want and we need to just let drastically more people in. For whatever reason, this gets conflated with the open borders position, which like, that's, I don't know what that means. Right. This is just like our current immigration system is broken. We have endless backlogs. We don't let very many people in. Our refugee admissions cap is so low. Why? Well, I think it's like some, sometimes people who are thinking about the different spectrums of libertarians, there, there are some libertarians who are at that extreme where we're like, hey, like we don't want any government you know, coercion at the borders whatsoever. Whereas like libertarian can mean a lot of different things, right? Like yeah, there's, there's a calibration to it. I'm right? not totally sure where I come down on that, but I think the most pragmatic and reasonable approach is just, I think people, you know, of good faith on both sides can agree that we have a crazy long backlog. You know, people say, you know, get in line, do it the right way. And it's like, I mean, Reason had a feature maybe three years ago that was uh, titled, there is no line. You know, the the line that people sort of uh, imagine in their heads, a lot of the times doesn't exist. A lot of the times, if you want an H-1B visa to come from India to, to the U.S., uh, I'm sorry, you're going to be waiting for like decades. And right. that's not a healthy system. That's not something... Uh, I just really don't think it's something we should be proud of. It's yeah. like one of the greatest tra tragedies with our current sort of political state that we're not paying attention to that. Well, the hot topic this week is Omicron, Omicron, whatever <laughs> we want to call it. And what I find fascinating about your position is you are, I think where you and I disagree on a lot and where I want to really get to is just whether we should have certain kind of mandates or not. Mm -hmm. But I think the, the, the dichotomy in the political debates right now seems to be between people who are for most mandates or people who are skeptical of vaccines at all yeah. and like traffic and misinformation and vaccines. But your position I think was summed up well in something that you retweeted from one of your colleagues, I think is Robbie Suave. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is what he said, and you retweeted this, I think, in, su in supportive way <laughs> and, and got some flack, I think, from the right. <laughs> and this is what he said. It seems to me that forced vaccination would promote the common good by saving thousands of lives, de-stressing the health system, and in general, contributing to a healthy citizenry. For me, liberty is a higher priority than this, but I thought that the NatCons felt differently, and he talked about more after that. What I find fascinating, by the way, that you and your colleagues at Reason talk about these things is that you seed points that 
you don't just feel like you have to argue every part of a position. You can you see certain points say, yeah, this is true, but I still believe this. Whereas I feel like the, the debate in the public square is like, I can't give any ground uh, yeah. to people who I disagree with on something. I mean, I think libertarians have a unique vantage point because a lot of us are, you know, really deeply ideological. You know, a lot of us read our, our Hayek and our, our uh, Rothbard and our Milton Friedman and all these things. Uh, but at the end of the day, like we're journalists and we offer up public policy solutions. Uh, and in order to be taken seriously within that realm, you know, like I would like to probably abolish the IRS or, you know, abolish various forms of taxation. That's not a realistic and helpful public policy solution. And I'm pretty interested in, you know, the ways that we can sort of move the needle, especially when it comes to pandemic response. I mean, this is an area where the federal government has really flubbed it. And I think libertarians are in it in a unique position to call attention to that. Because we're not saying, you know, uh, sometimes we are saying abolish the FDA or whatever, but yeah. a lot of the times what we're saying is, okay, like these government agencies in a time of crisis, holy crap, why can't we make them more efficient? Why right. is it that the UK's regulatory bodies approve vaccines um, with much more haste than our own regulatory bodies did? To me, that indicates uh, a sickness within our bureaucracy. And I would just really like it if uh, people cared about that. Yeah, so before we even get into the approval of vaccines and other life-saving medicines, walk us through so what you and Robbie propose, which is essentially saying, hey, like we acknowledge that vaccines work and that more people getting them is probably better for society, but we stop at requiring people to get them. I'll, well, I, government mandates specifically. A lot of libertarians are very comfortable with private employers mandating that because on I their mean, own, without the government forcing them. Exactly, to do that. because yeah. it's important to set the terms and conditions for your workplace. You know, we engage in contracts with the people we work for and the people we employ all the time. And you know, I mean, I'm thinking about your studio and your media enterprise right here. It's important that you guys all agree to you know consensual common terms. And I think, especially amid a pandemic, it's perfectly reasonable for employers to have that expectation. What's not reasonable is for Biden to direct OSHA to do this and to mandate, to force, to compel employers to do this. So you're in this interesting position of both disagreeing with the Biden policy, but also some of these states, maybe Florida, Texas, yeah. that are banning private employers yes. from doing what you said, which because is requiring vaccination. I mean, that's not pro-business. That's not pro-small business. That's not, you know, I don't believe that that type of government, that's government intrusion just by a different name. Uh, and I don't want government intrusion when it comes from the left, and I don't want it when it comes from the right. I think there are so many other tools in our arsenal that we could use to affect better pandemic policy. And for whatever reason, we are really fanning the flames of a lot of culture war conflict. And I just, it's so counterproductive. We're, you know, going on what, almost two years of this? In a few months, it'll be two years of this. At what point are we going to learn from those mistakes? Yeah, and where's the off-ramp, I think? Oh, is, yeah. It, which is, you know, there's a lot of good reporting by Ross Barkin, I think, in the Atlantic, and Reason's been talking about this for a long time. It's just, even if you agree with some of these policies, as I do, there needs to be a standard for how we walk away from them, you oh, know, because totally. they can last forever. If this if this is like the flu, like some people are saying, it will eventually be, and where it's seasonal and it will be a new variant every year, are we going to be living with these restrictions continuously? Well, I really think like, I mean, I anticipate wearing masks on planes for the next decade or so. Like, I really do think- By choice or by requirement, you're saying? By requirement, yeah. I think. Um, I mean, the thing that we were talking about a little bit earlier that I find to be actually really heartening, and I think it's pretty horrible that the media hasn't emphasized this very much, is even aside from government uh, coercion and even aside from these mandates, we saw something really miraculous happen right after vaccines were developed. And what we saw was some boomers and silent generation, older people, you know, that 60 to 75 and then 75 plus age group, 
they opted into getting vaccinated. Some of them, I imagine, had major concerns or culturally it wasn't very comfortable to them or, you know, they'd seen things that really cast doubt on vaccines. But they made the decision, you know, in mass, in, in great numbers to opt into getting vaccinated because people are self-interested and their group was most at risk of dying from this. And so they made that decision on their own. And by them doing that, they, we lopped off a huge number of deaths in this country. Like that is a really, really, really good thing. And I think the media, which is oftentimes so focused on doom and gloom reporting, really doesn't emphasize that. I'm not that interested in coercing or compelling, you know, a 30 year old who's already at pretty low risk of dying of this, um, like extremely low, low risk. Let's let's be very clear about the numbers. I'm not interested in coercing them and sort of making it so that they distrust the state even more. I think we're really driving red America and blue America apart even further. And we're these types of this fracture is really completely disheartening. And I think the Biden administration really didn't need to approach it this way. And this is where I have a challenge with this is like, I believe that the government should step in in situations where somebody's actions harm others, right? Mm -hmm. That's like my standard, not necessarily harming themselves, yeah. which is why I'm not that interested in seatbelt laws and all that. I don't have strong opinions <laughs> about them because it's really I'm yourself. the libertarian. Yeah. I'm supposed to bring up seatbelt laws. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't have strong opinions about it. I don't really, like, I don't lose sleep over it. Yeah. I understand them. I'm, and I also, like, people who complain about them, I, it's just not a concern one way. Like, I, I think it makes people safer but it's really about you, unless you have like an epidemic of traffic accidents that are clogging emergency rooms in your town. It's hard to make an argument that affects too many other people other than yourself. But in the case of pandemics, this is where I, it gets tricky because it it it's framed as harming yourself first and foremost. But depending on the nature of the disease, it also affects other people because you're more likely to transmit it to other people. And that's where that's where I, why I come out on the side of mandates being acceptable and. And part of it is also dealing with uncertainty, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know on any given daily basis, like on any given day, how deadly it is anymore, right? Like Omicron, we still don't know. And Delta, like, obviously took us some time to figure out how deadly that was. And I think what makes COVID interesting is it's like just on the line of like how deadly one would require something to be before going one way or another. But how would you yeah. feel about like smallpox, measles, and like requirements for kids who are going to school, for instance, to, to have to have those vaccines? I think that's a great question. So the way, just like the, the sort of baseline approach, the way that I inform my thinking, because this is very tailored specifically to COVID, right? Like yeah. we, you know, mandate that people be, you know, vaccinated for polio and we've eradicated polio successfully. I think there are a few factors at play here. Number one, the recognition that this is an endemic thing. It's not something that we're going to be able to, you know, it doesn't seem like something within the next five, 10 years or whatever that we're going to be able to eradicate or suppress. So we're not having this eradication mindset. We're having this endemic learning to live with it, harm reduction mindset. And so, so if that we informs, did, would that affect it? Like if you felt like yeah, there was if, credible evidence that we can get rid of this whole thing, I, you'd be I more think, Yeah, I think, I think I'd be more interested in that. I think there's also this other side of it, which is that, Vaccines confer such a high degree of personal, the vaccines that we currently have with the variants that we currently have confer such a high degree of personal um, protective properties, right? My vaccine, my vaccination does not make it so that I you know, won't get a breakthrough infection from one of you lepers, right? Like, I don't know. Um, <laughs> But my vaccine does make it so that like my chances of dying from this, even if I do contract it, are just so infinitesimally small. 
you know, I am healthy. I'm in my twenties. I am vaccinated. I, you know, I'm very lucky, but also like, this is, this is true for everybody, right? We get to opt into that decision for ourselves. If the vaccines didn't work in that way, if the vaccines, um, you know, didn't confer such a high degree of protection against death, I think it would be very fair to discuss uh, what types of mandates would be appropriate. But one of the things that's really bothering me with the way we're approaching this is we're still tallying up cases, not tallying up deaths. This is going to be something, I mean, I had a friend over at my house three weeks ago in Texas uh, and he was COVID positive. He found out like right before he came and he was like panicked, like, what should I do? And I'm like, you know what? We'll hang out outside. It's okay. Like just stay at a distance. Like I'll make you a cocktail. Relax, bro. Cause he just found out he was panicking. Um, but it's, it's, it's goofy to me because it's just like, okay, well, we're a group of like, let's be realistic about what the actual risk posed to us is here. His risk of dying was not at all high from this. And I don't think it's worth locking down society for stuff like that anymore. Yeah. We tried to do the suppression approach early on and it didn't work. Yeah. I wish it had worked. And in fact, early on, I sort of like was pretty pro lockdown and I've really changed my tune on a lot of these coercive measures over the course of the pandemic. Yeah, and I think part of what I've been trying to figure out is what that data even says about the early days of the pandemic because it's become so politicized, right? Like I think a lot, and the, and the politicization of the data goes all the way back to the 1918 flu and smallpox and all that, where people are now going back over and debating whether you know the lockdowns in San Francisco 100 years ago worked or not. Yeah. But one thing you said is interesting, which is the question of it, whether it's uh, endemic or not, mm -hmm. which I find such a fascinating standard. And I think what worries, I think what people are worried about, and I think one of the reasons why people resist giving any ground on this to, to an argument like that is yeah. that we're, the public policy responses on this are lumping together the other vaccines too now. Like there are mm -hmm. a lot of states that are, you know, proposing, for example, not like rolling back vaccine requirements for schools on all vaccines. Yeah. And that's, you know, it just gets to this point where it's really hard to do what you do, which is like, like, like seed valid points when you're worried about what other people are going to do with that information. <laughs> you know, it's like, all right, like, let's say I was persuaded. I'm like, all right. Let's use in, uh, like how endemic this is yeah. as the standard, and let's not require vaccines. Let's let's not require these vaccinations to go to schools. I think people are worried that all right, that's gonna basically empower people who want to get rid of all the other vaccinations yeah. in schools. Well, people are highly sensitive to being lied to, right? And yeah. we're seeing this with a lot of the challenges with public health messaging on this front. People, I think there is a, a sentiment that I, I think we would all agree exists, especially in more conservative leaning America, that you know at various junctures, the federal government uh, did them dirty. You know, They lied to them. Uh, they did a very poor job of communicating different things. Early on, we had the Surgeon General tweeting things, you know, telling the noble lie about, don't buy masks. We need to save masks for, for healthcare workers. And it's like, well, wait a second. What if the federal government mindset, not, not that there's just one mindset for the federal government, but you know what I mean? Yeah. What if it had been, we don't need to tell people noble lies because noble lies aren't actually noble at all. They're still lies. And we need to arm them with appropriate information and trust them to be able to be directed appropriately. But people really, I think hackles get raised when you mislead people. Right. What reason do they have to trust you? Why would you want to erode that trust? We've been, yeah, we've been doing a lot of reporting on this. And part of what I've been struggling with, that I'd be interested in your opinion, is how many of these are lies and how much of it is incompetence? Yeah. I mean, it's tough because I think it's sort of the upper echelons, like we saw this with the Surgeon General. I think we've seen this a little bit with like Rochelle Lewinsky and Dr. Fauci. I think there has been a little bit of, 
yeah, I think there's been a decent bit of lying, but then at, at other levels, I think there's incompetence. I think there's disorganization. I think one thing that we're actually going to see that I'm really interested in covering, I bet you guys are going to be paying attention to this too, is the fact that we have these antiviral, you know, pills being developed. I think Merck has one in development and Pfizer does as well that can potentially treat COVID once contracted, even for those who are not vaccinated. Right. And I'm really curious, like, will the FDA be rushing this through the approval process? This, you know, has potential to save so many lives. We're at 775,000 deaths in this country from COVID. It's a horrible, horrible state of affairs. But if we are developing not just vaccines that can prevent some of this, but drugs that can treat it uh, for the unvaccinated population, that's a really, really welcome thing. The FDA just has to, frankly, like get off their asses and, and work hard to approve this. I mean, with the vaccines, they took weekends off and holidays right. off. That's something that public health regulators in the UK and in a lot of Europe like didn't do. Right. And so tell me more about your opinions on the FDA, because I, I listened to an interview recently with Balaji, if you know Balaji, yeah, yeah. basically arguing what you're arguing, I think, for <laughs> abolishing the FDA. And he was making a lot of good points. But when he described his solution, I couldn't really imagine <laughs> in practice, which was essentially a Yelp for drugs, essentially, like people like, yeah. and I'm not doing his position justice, to be <laughs> clear, but essentially saying, let's have like people self-describe and like self-report their like their various experiences with drugs. And one of my problems with this is there's, I forget this database that that everybody's been citing about vaccines, which essentially when you use self-reported data- The vaccine only, adverse reaction. Yeah. yeah, like there's all sorts of stuff system. happening in there yeah. that it's very hard to figure out. And so although I'm, I'm skeptical of the bureaucracy to do this stuff well, mm -hmm. a good example is there's a drug called metformin, which is a diabetes drug yeah. that has really strong evidence that it helps with longevity. And a lot of countries actually don't require you to get a prescription for it. Uh, and you know the Har you know um, the Harvard expert on aging, for example, takes it, and um, um, the guy who wrote Lifespan, oh yeah, David Sinclair, uh -huh. and so the like huge experts like agree on this, but it, the U.S. government can't catch up to the science, and they don't even treat uh, longevity as like a worthy subject for pharmaceuticals in and of itself. So it's like the bureaucracy screws up all this kind of stuff, but at the same time, it's hard to imagine like some of these more radical solutions in practice. And maybe it's just like a failure of imagination. Like, Well, this is like one of the fundamental problems, which I think really separates a lot of the tech startup and now like, you know, Web3, DeFi, crypto, blockchain oriented world from more conventional public policy thinkers. I think there's, you know, to, to some degree, I think it is like, I, I struggle with this too, like failures of imagination. It's difficult to figure out, you know, if we move away from this sort of like centralized paradigm toward decentralized solutions or toward migrating things over and applying blockchain, te blockchain technology in interesting ways, I think it's pretty hard to envision what that future looks like. But I think it's really important that people try. Right. I think it's really important that we not just, you know, <sighs> allow the types of inefficiencies uh, that have really plagued the FDA and lots of parts of the federal government for so long, I just don't know why we tolerate them. I can right. understand, you know, a radical solution probably isn't the most useful thing to spend time talking about. But at the same time, I mean, we can even look to other countries as models of like, how do they structure their right. you know regulatory bodies? Yeah. Well, transitioning for a second. So outside of the pandemic world, you have you know, you're a critic of media, I would say, like we all are these days, but we're also part of media. <laughs> yeah. And I think as two people who work in media, we understand both, I think, some of the problems of big media right now, but also like the realities that people are going to get things wrong. People are going to bring their bias no matter how hard you try. And there was something you said interestingly recently, you, you kind of poked fun at this New York Times writer. <laughs> there was a New York Times writer who I said, I think said something, and you could probably refresh my memory, something 
about inflation that was really out of touch. What was it? Yeah, she was basically tweeting on and on about how inflation is actually, uh, I wish I like remembered fully verbatim, but how inflation is, you know, something that rich people welcome. And she's just incredibly Yeah, it's kind of an out of touch yeah. point about it, but like neglecting to see that the poorest among us actually- yeah. Uh, She's acting like it's a myopic sort of elite thing to be worried about, uh, you know, inflation and like the media class is really fomenting these fears as opposed to it being something that like, you know, the mom at the grocery store buying milk in Wisconsin or North Dakota is noticing inflation. Right. And pissed or off anybody about has it. to drive anywhere for work. For oh, yeah, example, exactly. Or drive their kids to school. And what I find interesting is that we've now been a couple months into this and the sort of parlance of debate online is tends to be that there's these self-described populists and they're of the left and the right who who basically take these examples and say, all right, now you just have to distrust all media. And basically their, their hidden message is trust us. And I think what I found interesting about your response was you poked fun at this New York Times writer, but then you followed up with a series of tweets saying, look, let's be careful here. Like the New York Times actually does some really important journalism. Yeah. And, and essentially what you were saying was, I don't want people to just walk away from these institutions. I want them to be better. But I'm not saying like, hey, like, let's just distrust everything these people say, which almost kind of mirrors what you're saying about public health institutions and science generally is like, you seem to have a little bit more measured of a response. Yeah, I mean, I'm fine with being a chaos agent in my personal life, but I don't think we should be like <laughs> chaos agents sowing like seeds of destruction right. within these institutions that, you know, that we we care a lot about. I mean, look, with the New York Times, they have, you know, what, a newsroom of 1500 people. They have a very impressive masthead, some really, really wonderful thinkers, great editing manpower, great podcasts. Um, they have a bunch of foreign bureaus that really do incredible international reporting. When India was hit super hard by, by the pandemic, um, by the last wave of it, it was the New York Times, you know, foreign bureaus that were really uh, delivering a lot of useful information to us, uh, you know, even recognizing that we can't always trust the the reporting from different government agencies within India. Like the, the New York Times was delivering a lot of that information to concerned parties around the world. With some of my Hong Kong and China reporting, I rely on, you know, stuff that comes out of the New York Times. It's been, you know, they're an incredibly valuable resource, which is why I am so disappointed in how homogenous, I think their newsroom has become, the degree to which they feel comfortable pushing out thinkers like Barry Weiss and Donald McNeil, people who really, the the idea that they've committed heresy or sort of like intellectual wrong think, it's pretty despicable to me. To me, that indicates a narrowing of the, of the, of the Overton window and also a certain sense that we're sort of letting the most junior people who really don't have a particularly, you know, deft, appropriate understanding of creating a culture of free speech, we're letting them run the show. And I think that's at all of our apparel. Yeah, and that's one of the founding principles of this company is that we wanted to bring people together no matter what their backgrounds are around this idea that we have to have a, a thick skin in the way that we engage with each other. We have to accept the fact that we're gonna disagree on some fundamental things and that sometimes people are gonna make mistakes and that you know, there are some mistakes that are unpardonable, but I think we have a more narrow view of what those are compared to a lot of people. Uh, and also trying, and, and everybody says they're trying to be humble, but really trying to have the humility to not say we know the answer to every single question. It's a knowledge problem. Like this is something that like libertarians, you know, talk about a lot. Some of our like favorite philosophers, like one of the very core ideas is, you know, we cannot have full knowledge of, of everything that's happening uh, in, in the world and in the economy. And it is important to allow these individual spontaneous interactions 
interactions between people um, inform the decisions that we make. But to act as if some central planner or some you know government agency has all of the answers, that's they're, they're not paying very much attention to their blind spots. And so we our hackles get raised when that happens. Well, uh, the next time we have you on, we want to talk about tech regulation. And so <laughs> like we've been following all this news about Facebook and Twitter and congressional efforts to to clamp down on speech uh, on uh, social media platforms. So that's what we want to have you on for next time. Awesome. Uh, this was really enjoyable. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. All right, audience, that's the end of our show. Thank you for being with us. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to us on YouTube, like those videos, subscribe to us on iTunes. Check out that announcement that I talked about earlier if you have any good ideas for shows or talented people that you want to bring our way. So thank you. <laughs>